Welcome to Family Room Discussions, where you invite me, Dalton Anderson, to your Come Follow Me study, and we discuss ideas, questions, and insights to the week's lesson. I am not a church historian or a scripture scholar. I am your average saint seeking to build my faith in Christ and deepen my testimony of the gospel and the scriptures, and I have found that by discussing Come Follow Me with others, it helps me to do just that. My sincere hope is that you will allow me to join in your gospel dialogue. With that introduction, let's start this family room discussion. Sisters and brothers, family and friends, this is episode 38, following along with After Much Tribulation Cometh the Blessing, Doctrine and Covenants, sections 102 to 105. And I've just been thinking about recording this podcast, like, all week. I've just been super pumped about it, and uh, Elder Renlund and his wife, uh, Sister Renlund, came to our our state conference. We we had state conference a couple weeks ago, I guess five weeks ago it was, and uh, they held a, a, a special state conference for them to come. I'm still not exactly sure. Uh, my guess was that we're just like the most wicked state in Utah or something like that. I don't know. Maybe we need the extra encouragement or whatever it is. But it was a great blessing to have them come to our our stake and be able to talk to us. And, and uh, there's a thought that Sister Renlin and her talk gave that has just been sticking with me. And Lex and I talked about it. It was just, I don't know, you just, you know, those stories that you hear and they're just powerful. They really hit you hard for, you know, whether it's the timing or just something that you care a lot about. So here's the story. So she was talking about how they used to live in um, Baltimore, Maryland. And uh, they were, I, I guess both of them were doing grad school out there or, or something. I don't know. There was a reason they were living out there for a, a period of time. And I believe it had to do with school. Uh, anyway, Sister Renlin talked about how she had been raised in Utah her entire life. And so moving out there was very different for her, just uh, culturally. It was, a, it was different being on the East Coast. And so they got invited in their ward to go to a crab oil. Now, Lex and I were immediately super excited about this story because we both served our mission in, in the South, in Mississippi, and so uh, that is a, a thing also in the South, uh, whether it's a crab boil or a crawfish boil or whatever, what have you. So we were immediately like, oh, we know where this story is going. And she talked about how they go over, they're very excited. She had never been to one. She had never had crab before. And they come out and they have the table just draped in paper towel, or uh, not not paper towels, to newspapers, right? And she made a joke about, you know, where where the workers going on strike, what was happening here, and uh, and we left because we understood. And I, I did look around and I was like, I wonder how many people here have never been to uh, a seafood boil, and don't know that this is the, this is how it's done. You do the the newspapers and everything. Anyway, so she talked about how they bring out these big pots and they dump out these crabs that are uh, like these red red looking crabs and she asked what they are and they were like it's, it, it's some sort of blue crab um i can't remember the specific uh, species of crab but i just remember it was blue because she made you know a comment about she's like but they're red you know and that led into them explaining that when you boil the crabs they turn red but normally they're blue and all that and so uh she was very funny very humorous sister renlin has a great sense of humor and she then asked how do they catch all these crabs to which they explained that they go out on a boat and they take these uh chicken necks and they tie it to a line and then they throw these chicken necks uh down to the chesapeake bay and let them sit down on the bottom of the sand and these crabs will come and they'll grab on with their claws onto these chicken necks and then these fishermen will slowly uh, pull up the string and then right near the top is when so the crabs will hold on the whole time until they about are about to get to the surface when they realize that they're probably in danger and at that point they go to let go but the fishermen uh, bring nets knowing this. And so they're able to scoop up the crabs before they can drift down to the bottom to safety. And she was listening to the story and she's like, Oh my goodness, 
Crabs are so dumb. And everyone is laughing in the audience. But this this hit me hard because then she pulled out. She, you know, relates it to how we have resources, how the Lord has provided us resources, both revelation and stuff. And she holds up the strength of youth pamphlet and talks about, she's like, so, so for the, the youth here, if only God had given us an instruction manual or a pamphlet that could help us to avoid these chicken necks. Um, and it was, it was a great, it was just a great object lesson. It really was. It was powerful. Uh, again, I don't know if it was because of the Lex and I understood this kind of this reference to crab boils or so we were already kind of enthralled by that. She was definitely a dynamic speaker. So that was uh, very helpful kind of drew the whole crowd in and the audience. But I've really been thinking about this. Um, and, I, and I loved how she related to the youth and especially the, the for strength of youth, which um, as it, I, I, when I was a youth, I loved the for strength of youth. Um, I didn't love the dating section, I suppose, because, you know, it's always used as like, this is why we don't get steady boyfriends or girlfriends, Dalton. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But otherwise, I, I did love the for strength of youth. It was very helpful to understand um, standards that are easily written out. It's it's easy to see where the lines are and not that it should be about where's the line and how close can you get to it, um, which is the point that she was making. Uh, these crabs, obviously, they, they go for this chicken neck, which is not the, it's not a great piece of meat for your typical eater. Uh, but these these crabs, they grab onto it and then they won't let go, and they hold on. And then they, when it's too late, when they realize they've been they've been pulled too far, and they think, oh well, now I can let go, and I'll I'll be in safety. And the fishermen are too smart, and they have these nets. And that's just like say with us, where we get closer and closer to the line, we want to be able to kind of flirt with the devil and have our fun, and and then we get caught in these chains, and it's it's too late by the time we realize. And it's very difficult then to be able to kind of go back to safety, as it were. Uh, not that it's impossible. That's obviously what the atonement is there for. And that's what all of us require is uh, repentance and change. That's what she said. She said that we need to be creating a habit and a pattern in our lives where we're repenting, constantly turning towards God, turning away from sin. And uh, as we do that quicker and faster, we will find that we're making less and less mistakes, less and less sins. And we'll continually find ourselves in safety. And uh, this has just been, it's been on my mind a lot because when going into the state conference, I had uh, one question, one question that I kind of wanted to pull out from. And I, uh, both sister and elder Renland, uh, while they didn't harp on it, the spirit, I was really listening for the spirit hard to be able to provide me some answers to this question, which is, what is the greatest trial that the church is facing as a whole? And I don't know if I got the answer. I, I, I don't believe I got the answer. Not that that matters, I guess. But I did get two answers that stuck out to me through their talks that I see as two great challenges that the church is going through right now. The first is that as members, we often misunderstand doctrine. We don't understand what the doctrine is. We think we do, and we say we do, and we preach about it. But then when it comes down to it, do we truly understand the doctrine? One example of this is that Elder Renlin, when he was speaking at, uh, first, before the state conference, there was a, a special women's conference that he held, and uh, I was not necessarily participating or listening in, but it was it was over Zoom broadcast, and so Lex was at home, and as I would walk in and out of the room, because we were setting up some bunk beds for Maggie and Flynn, uh, which is a whole other disaster that we're going through in our house right now, as uh, they're sharing a room so that 
that were ready for, for the baby to come any day now. And anyway, so I would, I would, you know, overhear certain things and he did a, a Q and a elder Renlin did. And, uh, one of the things he covered was elder Holland's talk at, at BYU that he gave. And he talked about how he understood there was, there was great misunderstanding about that. There was some hurt feelings and, and on and on. And he said two things of counsel that I think were brilliant. The first he said is that I recommend that everyone go back and listen to that talk again. And he said, I want you to listen for two things. Number one, who is the audience that Elder Holland is speaking to? Who is the audience that he is speaking to? And the second thing is, listen for the way that Elder Holland addresses those who struggle with same-sex attraction. And he said, I guarantee that if you listen with those two things in mind and, and listen for understanding, you will come away with a different uh, outlook on that talk than you went in. And um, again, I have still not listened to Elder Holland's <laughs> talk. I, As I've said, I have no problems with it already. I already know I don't. Um, but that's because I know Elder Holland is a, a genius man who is very careful in his words and would not say anything that is contrary to God's will. But I also believe that we do need our own experiences before we can weigh in on things. So that's why I'm not weighing in on anything about it other than to say this is what Elder, I heard Elder Renlund discuss about it. And he said, he's like, and he was, he's, I really like Elder Renlund. Um, of course I sustain him as an apostle, but, uh, as I've gone back over the last couple conferences and, and I typically go and listen to, uh, conferences three times about before the next one. And it's, this is, this will sound weird. And I hope it doesn't sound bad because it doesn't come off bad, but I always like think when it's the new apostles kind of, you know, Elder Rasband, Elder Stevenson and Elder Renlund that I'm like. I'm just not going to like their talks as much because they don't have as much experience as an apostle, you know, even though they've obviously had a lifetime of service. Uh, and and just because you're an apostle doesn't mean, you know, your talks are going to be amazing or what have you. But um, every talk that Elder Renlin has given has been one of my favorites. And I, I don't know why. I just I go in with one kind of uh, concept of what it's going to be like. And I come out and I'm like, no, no, that was an amazing talk. His last talk that he gave at this last general conference um, Oh, I can't remember the title of it, but it's essentially how life's not fair and that's okay because God loves to make up unfairness. And this whole concept, you know, it was just brilliant. It was a beautiful talk, kind of speaks to everyone, uh, wherever you're at and your understanding. It was just, it's brilliant. So I, I do recommend going back and listening to that talk. Well, anyway, he, he gave this and then he said, um, you know, same-sex attraction is not a sin. Same-sex attraction is not a sin. And, and that struck me because I was like, uh, when you when you think about it, when you ponder it, you're like, right, right. And, and then the natural inclination is to follow up and say, but acting on it is. And that's not what he said. He, he, he said, same-sex attraction is not a sin. And then he said, we do. And then he said, it is a false dichotomy to believe that we need to choose between keeping the commandments and uh, following the doctrine of the gospel and loving people. He said, that is a false dichotomy. He said, people will ask him, he's like, you know, which is more important that I keep the commandments or love people? And he said, both, both are important. And then he goes on to explain this point that it's like, we don't need to teach. Um, don't act on same sex attraction feeling. He's like, that's, and, and this is now I'm not, I'm taking a, not from his words. Exactly. This is kind of what I took from this though. It's, 
Uh, because what he said that we need to be doing as members and as saints is we need to be teaching the law of chastity with love and reverence. And that, uh, that that's powerful because it's true. I think sometimes too often we, we harp on the, well, don't do this, don't do that. I know I certainly do. Um, but that's, that's really not the, the way that the, the Lord taught and, and teaches us. He doesn't teach us of, well, don't do this and don't do that. He says, this is what you should be doing. Uh, this, is, this is what you should do to follow after me and follow my commandments. And by doing this, these are the blessings you will receive in your life. And uh, I know for me that's significantly more motivating than when someone tells me not to do something with no promise of blessings or reward. And not that it should be about the war, but it is. I mean, why would you go through the gospel? Why would you be a member? Why would you go through all the uh, hardships and, and tribulations that come without blessings, right? I mean, the very title of this lesson, after much tribulation cometh the blessing, wouldn't make a whole lot of sense for all of us to be uh, striving to be saints if the title was just after much tribulation, dot, 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 done. So... It was beautiful thoughts, and that's something that's really stuck with me. And with that, now I'd like to get into this lesson because I do think that a lot of the things that uh, I've shared so far tie in. So, in the introduction, it says, The saints in Kirtland were heartbroken to hear that their brothers and sisters in Jackson County, Missouri, were being driven from their homes. It must have been encouraging, then, when the Lord declared that the redemption of Zion would come by power. With that promise in their hearts, over 200 men, plus about 25 women and children, and listen to what they called the Camp of Israel, later known as Zion's Camp. Its mission was to march to Missouri and redeem Zion. To the members of the camp, redeeming Zion meant restoring the Savior, the, excuse me, the saints to their land. But just before the camp arrived in Jackson County, the Lord told Joseph Smith to stop and disband Zion's camp. Some members of the camp were confused and upset by this new instruction. And I love this part. To them, it meant the expedition failed and the Lord's promises were not fulfilled. Now, I want to stop right there because I this, I, this has been me. This has been me in my life. Uh, and I, I hate always harping back to this. Uh, but for me, it was uh, the first time that this really hit me hard was my mission. I remember going out expecting one thing. And then when, when that one thing happened, which was to have baptisms constantly, and that didn't happen for me. I was in the South. And when that didn't happen, I was so upset and distraught. And I was like, this is, I, I mean, what's the point? I should go home. That thought stuck with me for five to 10 weeks, honestly, um, and it was even harder when we did have a baptism, and it was it was beautiful. After five weeks, uh, we baptized this couple, and um, a week later, we saw them in their car uh, smoking a cigarette. And of course, I was a young missionary; I didn't, you know, didn't understand. I I, was, I had never struggled with the word of wisdom, so I I just was like, "Oh, all hope is lost. They're done. Their souls are cast off forever, and they've rejected the gospel." I was, you know, obviously very young and naive. I didn't. I was very young in my understanding. But I remember that was a very tough experience for me. And I, I just was like, what are we doing? What is this for? This is all pointless. And those were some challenges that I had to overcome. And so I have felt like those members of Zion's camp who were like, well, we were supposed to do this. This didn't happen. So it's it's a huge failure. Others, however, saw it differently. While the exiled saints never returned to Jackson County, the experience did bring a degree of redemption to Zion. And it did come by power. Faithful members of Zion's camp many of whom later became leaders of the church, testified that the experience deepened their faith in God's power, in Joseph Smith's divine call, and in Zion. Not just Zion the place, but Zion the people of God. Rather than questioning the value of this seemingly unsuccessful task, they learned that the real task is to follow 
the Savior, even when we don't understand everything. This is how Zion ultimately will be redeemed. And I love that last part. So, let's get into it. In uh, the first section, what is the purpose of the instructions in these verses? Um, I'm just going to get in. Well, I, I do love President M. Russell Ballard's talk. Uh, his quote here on the second paragraph, it says, members sometimes ask why church membership councils are held. The purpose is threefold. Number one, to save the soul of the transgressor. Number two, to protect the innocent. And number three, to safeguard the church's purity, integrity, and good name. So here's some scriptures that stuck out to me from this section. Was uh, First is in section 102. Well, these are all in 102, but verse 12, it says, whenever a high council of the church of Christ is regularly organized according to the foregoing pattern, it shall be the duty of the twelve counselors to cast lots by numbers, and thereby ascertain who of the twelve shall speak first, commencing with number one, and so in and so in succession to number twelve. And uh, the reason I highlighted that is that, to my understanding, now although I don't believe they cast lots, uh, at least not anymore, and from what I this is from what I understand, I don't know if this is true or not. This is just what I have heard from. I can't even remember the source, so that's or taking this with a grain of salt. But from what I understand, the first presidency and the 12 apostles, when they meet to discuss church matters, uh, especially things that are like policies or, or whatever, whatever topic they need to discuss, it starts with the senior, the presiding authority. So if it's obviously if the prophet's there, then it's the prophet. Or if it's the uh, president of the, the quorum of the 12, then it's him. But they start from seniority and then they discuss and talk without interruption until they are done with their thought. And then it moves on to number two, and then to number three, and to number four. Now, if number, let's say number four, and again, this is to my understanding, I don't know if this is exactly true, so if anyone has clarifying uh, information, that would be great. But then let's say number four brings up something within this, this realm, and number one has a common they would like to add to that. Then it jumps back to number one, and then to number two, then to number three, number four, number five, and so on until they get until the end, number 12. And the uh, that's my understanding. There's, there's a story that I've heard about the elder Bednar when he was the youngest, when he was the most junior apostle at the time, they were discussing something and it was elder, it was uh, president Packer who was leading out this discussion and they had gone through and he had waited his turn. He had something to say, but as number 12 in, in that meeting, he had to wait till the very end and it had gone through and gone through. And, uh, finally at 11, um, it, because it kept jumping back, right, all the way through. It finally gets to him, and he felt like they had spent too much time on the topic. And so it got to him, and and he said, oh, we're good. We can move on. And President Packer was like, Elder Bednar, do you have something to say? And he's like, well, just, and he said, <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember the quote from President Packer, but essentially it was like, Elder Bednar, we will stay here until everyone has been able to say their piece. There is no rushing this process. Um, so again, that's just a... a probably a third, fourth-hand account. I, I I cannot remember who told me that story. So it might not be true at all. It could just be a complete rumor. But I do like the fact that if that is true, that uh, it's obviously... I, I have a testimony of belief that, that there is a lot of thought and deliberation and everything that goes into uh, the leadership of the church, especially the apostles and... The first presidency, everything that they talk about and discuss is is not just a quick decision. It's not a rash decision, but it is trying to make sure to, to rely on, obviously, the Holy Ghost and revelation and then the wisdom they have gained over the, the years of their life to be able to bring to the table 
and counsel together to be unified. And so that's just a thought I share. And then in uh, 102 verse 16, it says, and the counselors appointed to speak before the council are to present the case after the evidence is examined in its true light before the council. And every man is to speak according to equity and justice, which I, I bring this up just because that is, uh, that's due process. And due process is obviously important uh, for, for the United States and the constitution. And it's always good when the founding fathers got, got it right. Uh, obviously, according to what God wanted them to, because that's what's set up in, in the church. And then in, uh, in verse 23, it says, in case of difficulty respecting doctrine or principle, if there is not a sufficiency written to make the case clear to the minds of the council, the president may inquire and obtain the mind of the Lord by revelation. And this instruction is super important for us if we want to be able to understand revelation, how to receive it ourselves, because we first need to seek revelation on the subject by doing our homework. We have to search the scriptures. We have to search what's been said by prophets and apostles, uh, general authorities. And, and uh, as we do our research and homework, often we will find the answers we're seeking. But to just get on our knees and expect to uh, be able to pray and then have whatever doctrinal principle given to us uh, without doing any homework or research, um, that's just not how God works. He exp he, if he's given the answer, he doesn't waste, waste answers again. He doesn't repeat himself. He doesn't need to. And so that is how we're able to learn further light, truth, and knowledge is through this process. And it's important, uh, especially as going back to what I said, I, a great concern I, I feel like I have about the church is just misunderstanding doctrine. Like we think we know it, but we don't know that we know it. And then we often teach things that maybe not aren't true. So in the second section, Zion can be built on principles of righteousness. Um, why did the saints lose their promised land in Missouri? And why didn't the Lord allow Zion's camp to restore them to their land? Certainly the violent actions of Missouri mobs played a role. And the governor of Missouri had pledged support for the saints, but never gave it. But the Lord said that there were, were it not for the transgressions of my people, Zion might have been redeemed. As you read Doctrine and Covenants sections 103 and 105, you may notice some things that hinder the establishment of Zion in Missouri and others that could have helped. What do you learn that can help you establish Zion in your heart and your home? And uh, to answer that question, it comes from 103, section 103, 3 to 4. For I have suffered them thus far, that they might fill up the measure of their iniquities, speaking about the mobs, that their cup might be full, and that those who call themselves after my name might be chastened for a little season with a sore and grievous chastisement, because they did not hearken altogether unto the precepts and commandments which I gave unto them. Um, the principle I take from this is that the wicked are allowed space to sin to prove their destruction. God doesn't just say, well, I know you were bad, therefore uh, you're damned to hell. That's not how that works. It's we prove our wickedness or our righteousness. Now, we have to prove it. We have to actually do things. It's not just about, well, you were going to do it and therefore, because that would remove agency. And that's, that's extremely important, uh, an extremely important concept. And then also, as saints, if we're not growing together, if we're not willing to be a team, that military mindset, right? No man left behind. Uh, if we're not willing to grow together, we will all suffer together. This is in our, our homes, in our wards, our communities. Uh, we have got to be patient with one another and suffer together. That's that's what it says in Alma 18, right? Mourn with those that mourn, comfort those that stand in need of comfort. That is the covenant we make at baptism. And, and so that, that, that's something that we have covenant to do, to do. And that's what God expects of us. And then in verse nine, it says, for they were set to be a light unto the world and to be the saviors of men. And that's what God expects of us as well. We are to be a light unto the world. That is the expectation that God has on us. 
And rejecting that expectation, rejecting our call to do that is essentially to reject our own sainthood. So uh, in the third section, it says blessings come after afflictions and trials of faith. This is the, um, to me, this was the most important section for my study. Um, the, 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 what I pulled out the most in the section, it says in many ways, participating in Zion's camp was a trial of faith. The journey was long. The weather was hot. The food and water were sometimes scarce. And after all they endured, the saints were still not able to return to their land. Consider how the principles and doctrine come in section 103 and 105 might have helped, mem helped members of Zion's camp who wondered whether the commandment to organize had really come from God in the first place. How can these principles help you in your trials of faith? You could also read about the experiences of members of Zion's camp in Voices of the Restoration at the end of this outline, which is exactly what we're going to do first. So this is from Joseph Smith. It says, over 40 years after Zion's camp, Joseph Young, who had been a member of the camp, reported that Joseph Smith said the following, Brethren, some of you are angry with me because you did not fight in Missouri, but let me tell you, God did not want you to fight. He could not organize his kingdom with 12 men to open the gospel door to the nations of the earth and with 70 men under their direction to follow in their tracks unless he took them from a body of men who had offered their lives and who had been made a great sacrifice, who had made as great a sacrifice as did Abraham. Now, I've just finished reading uh, The First 2,000 Years uh, by Cleon Skousen, and this is it's a really great book. I highly recommend it if you haven't read it. Um, definitely something for every you know church library. Uh, and, and next, in next week's podcast, I'm actually going to share a couple thoughts from it. But, uh, the reason this is on my mind is because as I just finished it and the final kind of chapters are about Abraham and his life and that sacrifice, obviously the sacrifice being about Abraham being willing to give Isaac his, uh, I mean, his only true heir, I suppose. Um, or at least the heir of the, the birthright, cause he had other sons, um, but that sacrifice, the sacrifice of, of being willing to give his, his, his only son, so to speak, uh, would be a tremendous sacrifice for anyone. And we talk about it, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense why God would command Abraham to, to go against the commandments. And, and Cleon Skousen explains in his book that, you know, going into it, this, and this is obviously him taking the liberties, but I do believe this, that Abraham went in either a believing that um god would i mean god he knew god had the power to bring people back to life and so maybe that was what the expectation is that he would have to sacrifice isaac and then god would bring him back to life uh potentially god wasn't actually asking him to do this or or what have you there's there's a couple thoughts here but that it, the problem for Abraham, the, the reason it was a trial of faith, was it went against everything he knew about God. Everything. And when you think about his own life, the fact that Abraham, uh, his own father, was uh, had been caught into priestcraft when he was young and that had essentially offered Abraham up to the, the, uh, the wicked priest to be able to sacrifice him to their pagan gods. And so this was like a, a pretty close to the chest thing that was being asked of Abraham to do. He had obviously experienced it himself as, as a youth and now his own son, now he's, you know, Abraham's in his hundreds and asked to sacrifice Isaac and uh, went against everything he knew. And so, yeah, sometimes, or a time, I suppose, should come that God is going to command us or ask us to be able to show true faith by something that just makes no logical sense to us to show that we will truly follow in the footsteps. I know that there's people who 
uh, ridicule, obviously, the scriptures or, or this story, and they say that either God is a, a changing and a wicked God or that uh, Abraham's just an idiot, one of the two, and, and I think that just ruins one of the most sacred stories, uh, certainly in scriptures and in the Old Testament. So comparing this sacrifice that they're making um, to the sacrifice of Abraham, to me, is huge. That's, that's I mean, Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith was using a really big example. And then uh, Wilford Woodruff says, um, and it's this one quote I like really hear from, but it says, we, he says, we gained an experience that we never could have gained in any other way. That is what I think about my trials. When I look back, when I think of all the things that I've gone through thus far, and I know that I have <laughs> a whole lot of trials, a whole lifetime of trials left. And uh, I'm sure that if I knew what they were, that I would probably shake and quake and be like, I don't think I can do this. So there's a huge blessing in not knowing what the future holds. But every trial I, I think back and look on, I, I recognize that the person I am today is because of those trials, 100%. And of course, I would never have chosen to pass through those trials. I don't think any of us really chooses uh, to go through our trials. Sometimes because of our own decisions, we are... we take the the consequences of our actions uh, sometimes the people around us those we love they cause us to suffer and to go through trials and sometimes bad things just really do happen to us and there's really no explanation for it. we would love an explanation there's just none none to be had but every trial every trial has made me the person i am today and so this scripture for after much tribulation as i have said unto you in a former commandment cometh the blessings we need to have faith in that that is what carries me through my trials, and I can say through my lifetime at least that so far that has been true every single time, and and every single time it's it's a stretch of my faith, and there's days where I'm like I just think this is a load of bull, and I'm just going through this for no reason. I think we've all been there. If you haven't, then uh, you're probably going to pass through that because I think that's a, a mortal experience that everyone has to have. We have to go have our backs to the wall of faith. But I know pretty much everyone's had that. The thing that causes me to fear, the reason I keep going and, and I never stop going is because it's the uh, it's that whole saying, we have not come this far to only come this far. I, I really, at this point in my life, to turn back now, I would be like, man, what a waste of all the trials I went through up to this point. And that's what keeps me going. So in the next section, I am a steward over earthly over earthly blessings. Just a couple thoughts here. But number one is in 104, uh, verse 13. This is for it is expedient that I, the Lord, should make every man accountable as a steward over earthly blessings, which I have made and prepared for my creatures. God expects us, expects us to be accountable in his kingdom. So keep that as a uh, principle to live by is accountability. And then in verse 16, it says, but it needs be done in mine own way. And behold, this is the way that I, the Lord, have decreed to provide for my saints, that the poor shall be exalted and that the rich are made low. And I don't think it's for us to be able to say, you know, there's a story in here that it, it shares to talk about, with, which is John Tanner. Uh, he was a, a very wealthy man who ended up saving the church in their time of uh, debt, and he came in. And so being rich is in, in and of itself is not a sin, right? And, and Jacob... Uh, Jacob in the Book of Mormon talks about this as a principle that seeking riches is not a sin. It's it's seeking riches to bless others. And again, I think this principle is that if you do have 
uh, riches recognized where they come from, and then be a good steward over it. It's not about just handing out money to the poor and the needy. It's it's not about just, you know, giving away because often you, it's the whole give a man a fish, you know, a fish is for a day. It's that principle that you need to do it as a wise steward. God expects us to be a wise steward. And, and as a, someone, as a poor person, also don't just constantly be seeking that you would be rich, but instead make the most of what you have now. And uh, there's this uh, this saying, or, or someone gave this quote, and I actually think it's pretty brilliant because I believe it's true, but that if you were to take all the money in the world and then distribute it evenly, so take everything from everyone right now and then distribute it evenly, within five to six months, the same people who were rich before would be rich again and the same people who would be poor would be poor again, at least the majority. And I, I think that's true because it's not necessarily about what you're given, it's what, you're, it's what you do with what you have. Uh, that makes the the person that makes the individual and then in verse 17 it says for the earth is full and there is enough to spare and to spare yea and i prepared all things and i've given unto the children of men to be agents unto themselves i bring this up because i have heard from quote unquote the wise of the the world that there are limited resources to this earth and uh, we need population controls and things like that because the earth can only support a certain population size in fact bill gates has said that before and he's wrong. In verse 78, it says, And again, verily I say unto you concerning your debts, Behold, it is my will that you shall pay all your debts. Pay your debts. Um, Lex and I have, have sought from the beginning of our marriage to be debt-free always. And I'm, I'm happy to report the only debt we have at this point is a house payment, which we'll probably spend the rest of our, <laughs> our lives paying. But uh, no payments on cars and, and no debts in anything else. We don't have any credit card debts or anything like that. And the feeling of peace and freedom that comes from being debt-free is a freedom that you just, you can't buy. I mean, I guess you can because it's called being debt-free. But uh, just, it's an incredible feeling. And I feel incredibly blessed that I've married an accountant. And although you probably cannot marry an accountant yourself, you can become one. By learning the financial principle. Anyway, so that's what I that's what I learned from this lesson. Ultimately, I think my big conclusion is that my great concern, the th- the thing that I'm always concerned about, is as I look at the youth of our day, you know, the the teenagers kind of coming up in the ranks and, and stuff like that. I get concerned just as I'm sure that the leaders, when I was a youth, were concerned that will I get it? Would I get it? Would I stay strong to to true principles? Would I want? What I seek for conversion and stuff like that, because the decisions you make as a youth really do set the foundation for the decisions you make as an adult. The many of the decisions I make now are because of the decision I made when I was 15, 16, 17, 18. And I am so glad that I made a lot of good decisions and that for the dumb decisions I made, the bad decisions, the sins, I, uh, I learned repentance and I learned all about it and was able to truly become converted to recognizing that the Lord loves me, wants me to be clean and pure and to return to him. And having that belief has set me on a course that I can't turn back from. And it's my, you know, greatest anxiety for my family and my friends, uh, especially my young family and friends, when I see they make them making decisions that doesn't (laughs) doesn't feel like they believe that the Lord loves them. And it doesn't feel like he wants what's best for them. And, and that it's just, you know, the church isn't for them and everyone's just judging and it's it's all about people to be able to bash you over the head. And, and yeah, that can happen for sure. Sometimes in our 
our fears of sin and uh, we forget repentance, we forget the atonement and we just get so concerned about, but you're making the wrong decisions and we don't preach in love and, and kindness and in God's way, honestly. And that's, Lex and I talked this week, my greatest concern as a parent is that I will get so anxious about our kids not making the decisions that I want them to be making and forgetting that really our job is to teach the gospel in the Lord's way and learn how he did it. That is what we're doing as stewards. And uh, it's tough. It's honestly the toughest work. God's work. Who knew? God's work is the toughest work we can embark in. But the, the greatest blessings come from it. That's my testimony. So thank you for inviting me to your family room discussion. What ideas, questions, or insights did you have from Doctrine and Covenants, sections 102 to 105? Until we meet again, have a blessed week.